gonna get uh, a little bit. Um, I'm gonna get a little bit detailed here, but I w there's gonna be a lot of principles here. So if you can't grab all of them, that's fine. Just uh, just let it massage into your soul and your spirit, because um, it will take some time to to get in there. But as you massage it into you, like you know, I don't bake, but I'm sure that when you bake, you do something like that, and then it comes into it, right? No, you don't do that at all. All right, anyways, don't think of, don't do baking good. All right, so you just you want to massage the the powder into the stuff. Okay, never mind. Don't do that. Don't do that. No, do not massage the powder into the stuff. Okay, so but just get a little bit of it and see it, and then you're gonna start noticing as you go out, you'll start seeing some of it that's not taking place or taking place, and then it'll it will help you construct these things. Um, this is a church planning movement. Uh, these are very big principles that are used in some of the largest church planning movements in the world. And so I haven't seen success for them at a large scale um, when I work with cell groups. So I've, only, I've seen cell groups multiply and double, go from like maybe 10 to like 100. I've seen stuff like that. I've, I've worked in areas like that. But I've never seen it go to like the tens of thousands. And so I was always just like, I think I'm doing something wrong. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know why this thing isn't really doing that. And so I always looked at it. And then, so the Lord gave me um, an example. He said that a country disciples itself already. So if you look at a country, your kids become something because something is discipling them. Whether it's a godly person or not, something is discipling your kids. When you look at a country, the country disciples itself. And so when you study a nation, you'll realize that there's mechanisms that create behavior in a country. And so part of the discipleship is making sure that the population is being discipled. That's how government leaders think. They think about the percentage of their population or the population itself. And so what I was learning with the Holy Spirit was that he was teaching me, you could think of a person like a population. So the same things that you would do with a person, you do that over the population. And so if you're able to produce that, you're able to produce disciples by the percentages, not by just strictly the one-for-one -one addition. So anyways, uh, the reason why I'm saying that is because these principles, if you apply it over an entire population, they still work in viral movements. They don't have to work in cell groups only. If you plant them on top of something like a school division, they'll still multiply because all of these are biblical principles. And so one of the things the Lord was telling me, because I kept, I kept going back and forth with God, um, I've never been in a region where I've had this much trouble working with churches. So I'm just like, man, I don't know why there's so little churches that are working here. And it, normally it's like uh, Maragundan. Maragundan, we go to Maragundan, the whole ministerial wants to work with us. Or we go into Lapu-Lapu or Cebu or something, or Mindanao, right? Then you get the whole ministerial trying to work with you or a lot of people. There's some regions that don't do that, but I was really having a hard time with that. And I was asking the Lord, this is one of the biggest harvests that we've ever seen this fast. Like 40,000 people every single three months is absolutely wild. And like, I'm like, I don't know where we're going to get all this manpower. And then I kept wrestling with God. I kept wrestling with God. And then he said, um, well, well, who's taking care of the 40,000 already? And I was like, well, the school is, because that's where they all came from. And he said, well, why don't you treat the school like the church plant? 
So everything you would teach the church, teach it to the school division. And then I was like, yeah, that might work. But then that would mean the school has to like accept us like that. And we can't like water down the gospel. You got to keep it clean. You got to keep it pure. You got you to do it. And then he was like, oh, ye of little faith. Why don't you just ask them? And I was like, okay, I guess I'll ask them. So anyways, we start asking them and then they start saying, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. And I was like, cool. <laughs> so like, that sounds good, God. So, um, but anyways, a lot of these principles are the things that are carrying what we're doing right now. And so they're very foundational. These are like classic church planting movement principles. And so you don't want to remove them because they're very, they're very key to movements. And so you want to be thinking, are you creating a movement that will be able to sustain the test of time? And so Christianity is, it's longer than 2,000 years if you count where, where it started from the beginning of time. But it's, um, if you look at after Jesus, it's 2,000 years old. So there's principles inside of the church that you don't want to kill. There's principles that the Lord uses in the Bible that you want to keep. And these are the things we're going to discuss about what they look like. And so you want to make sure inside of the movements that you're working with that these things are occurring. All right, so let's go ahead and go to page eight. And we're going to talk about, um, if you can imagine, so these are the ways that you could think about some of these things so you can remember them. On the palm of your hand, you got some fingers, and then you got a pouch. That's how you will remember all of these key principles. So the first one is the pouch. The next one are the five fingers, the four, the three, the two, and then the one. And so if you could remember your hand, you could remember these principles. That's the way it works. And you kind of massage it into your life, and then overall you get it. So let's talk about the pouch first. Okay, so the pouch, when you look at the pouch, the P stands for the pastor. So the pastor, whenever you train, it has to be participative. If you, you, could, if you lose my detail, it's right here. It's number one. So the P means... What doesn't work is when the pastor is just preaching and they're not engaging. So when you're looking at a movement, the Bible study can't be passive. It has to be active. So right now, our Bible studies in the school are a little passive because we just tell them what the word of God is, mainly because we just started it. And then, um, and then we kind of go to the next class. So we got like 20, 30 minutes or so. And so that's great, though. I mean, we got 120 classrooms that want to, actually, I think now it's like 170, 170 classrooms that want Bible studies in their classrooms. So that's great. But because we're laying a foundation for a movement, I know that unless we get these to become active participation, then it won't grow healthy. So we have to train the teachers in such a way that they're engaging the students with active engagement versus just telling them what's going on. So that's the first principle that's there with P. The next one is O, which is obedience. It's nice that we have character and value, but unless they obey it, then it doesn't matter. That's the next part that you're looking at. Every piece of the Bible... You don't want to subtract when God says, obey my commands, which if you, if you, which I, or hear my commands, which I think is, I think it's Shema. I don't know if it's, I don't know if that's the exact word, but it's, um, 
obey and hear in Hebrew are the same word. So when you hear from your father, it's expected that you would obey. They're the same word in the Bible. So every place where it says here, it says obey. That's what it means to be a, a disciple of Jesus. And a disciple of Jesus means a learner, a student. In um, the Hebrew context, there's no such thing of a student that doesn't experience the knowledge. So there's no such thing as a theoretical disciple that doesn't exist in the Bible. The Bible, all of the disciples are hands-on experience. That's why all of the teachings of Jesus, he said, you go feed the 5,000. Give me your bread, I'll give it to you, I'll pray over it, and then you break it in front of the 5,000. Peter, why don't you come to me on the water and walk to me? Apostles, why don't you throw your net on the side of the fish and obey my voice and then pick up the fish? Everything's built on obedience. And so the one place where you don't want to get over charismatic, so to say, is where you're judging it by feeling. Now the feeling is existent. If you subtract the feeling, you really subtract the first love. But if you subtract the obedience, you also kill the first love. Because there's no first love without obedience. So the first one in pouch is obedience. The next one is you, which is unpaid. You can't sustain a movement by paid workers. All of them have to be able to self-sustain themselves. Because if you start paying them, you start breaking the movement. It doesn't mean that they function on no money. It just means that they're not paid a salary. They have to be able to move wherever the Holy Spirit's calling them. And they have to be able to multiply without a paycheck. Every single move of God in the entire world in history was done without a paycheck. It has to spread that way in terms of biblical, in terms of biblical church planning movements. All right. In fact, one of the reasons why YWAM is so big is because we don't get paid. Because if you're paying a salary to 30,000 people, who's paying it? Right? One of the, um, some denominations, they only have 5,000 missionaries. They pay all of them. We have like 30,000. If you look at all of the other church planners in the world and the movements they started, they don't get paid. Well, their context is a little different because they're starting church planning movements with people that work. So it's a little different. But anyways, you don't want it to be restricted by money. Every movement you're asking yourself, will this multiply without paid workers? If you have to pay somebody, it will not multiply correctly. So you have to, you have to ensure that. That's important because let's say you start a movement, but then you start paying people. You have to, the only way you multiply it is by payment. And you don't want to get into that. It'll never go viral if it's like that. All right, the next one is viral is kind of like a new age word. It's not really, viral is more for hits. It's not really the right word actually. Anyways, let's go to um, C. All right, cell groups should remain small enough to meet in homes. There's a couple of, there's a couple of reasons why for this. Um, that's why classrooms actually work kind of well too. But cell groups, the reason why it's like that is because let's say you can only start a movement if you have a building. Then you have to get a building. But if you get a movement that started with zero resource, then it doesn't have a limitation. So if it's a cell group inside of a house, then it could be anywhere on the planet. 
Uh, for example, um, one of the largest churches in Asia or in the world, 108 million, they were looking at America and they were saying, we, you need to teach us how to make our churches because you do your churches so well, they're so beautiful and they glorify God so much. And so um, some of our leaders in Kalaal, they were telling them, do not do what America did because, because we have buildings, we're destroying the movement. So there's a, there's a universal stat, a global stat. The more large gatherings you have, the less small ones you will get. There's something about humans that if we meet in large gatherings, we think of that as our home. You don't think of the small thing as your home. So somewhere down the line, it has to break, it has to break in a way that people can manage it. They don't have to pay for it, so to say. It doesn't have to start with a huge budget. You have to start a movement that can start with zero money for it to, for it to really kick steam. Again, if you want to really break down these principles, you have to start a movement based on relationships. The whole core of the movement, the whole engine of the movement is the first greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor. That's the mechanism of movement. It's the human relationship. Every resource you need is inside of a human being. That's why you could start a movement in jail. That's why you could start a movement in a persecuted country. That's why you could start a movement in a non-persecuted country. Because the situation doesn't determine the movement. The quality of the leader is what determines how far the movement will go. So you have to think like that. You have to think what's going to push this thing forward is the human being on the ground. Everything else is just spice on the cake. So you have to, you have to remember that human beings are irreplaceable to a movement. All right, the next one is um, H, which kind of goes into the C part, which is the cell groups, which is the homes. Meet in homes to lower the expenses. Okay, there's another reason why you meet in homes. Um, they have some areas in rural areas where they teach them how to go to church. When they doesn't mean we work with churches, so it's not like we don't work with churches. I, we're, we're, we're working with tons of churches right now. So, um, but I'm just going to tell you the principle that you're looking for, that you have to know it's a principle. When you're inside of, let's say, uh, yeah, in these rural areas, if you teach them that church is on Sunday and you have to dress up to go to church, you can go to a place where they have no water. This is, this is actually reality. They have no water. They have barely any clothes. They have barely any food, but they have a suit for Sunday. Because the missionaries that came taught them that you need to be having a suit when you show up on Sunday. That's where, you, that's where you encounter God. So you need to respond to God by dressing yourself up and looking presentable to him. Now that's true. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the principle. That's not the core principle that's driving it. When you're inside of a home, you have to adapt yourself to their culture. It's harder to change somebody's culture. If you change somebody's culture so much, you might lose the movement. So if you stay within their context, within the way that they run stuff, so to say, in their contextualization, then the movement will spread through the whole people group. But imagine you're making a people group where people have to become westernized. The only way that you could 
multiply in this movement is you become like the Westerner or the foreigner that came in. Then that, that limits how far you will go. But imagine the movement was driven by the culture itself. So it does, if, you're from, uh, if you're from an island, then we'll make the movement push through the island culture. If you're inside of a city, it will push through the city culture. If you're inside of a church, then it will push through the religious sphere culture. So, which is true. Because the movement that we have in the native city is different than the movement we're starting with the native churches. I don't know if you, I don't know if you may have noticed it, you may or may or not. The way that I interface with the churches is different than the way that we interface with the native ones that are getting saved. Because the churches have a culture and then the ones that are just getting saved have a culture. I'm not talking about church, the body of God, communing. I'm talking about the Sunday church structure that we all know about. You can't, it's, you can't get them to cross over so well. I don't even, I don't, what I used to do is just not try and work with people that can't cross over. But then it just doesn't work because God still works with everybody. So you have to start a movement in the church and then you have to start a movement with the ones getting saved. And there's some place where they cross over, but you know that it's not 100%. So you looking at the whole blueprint, you have to know that's part of it. You can't expect the church to do something that the religious sphere doesn't do. And you can't expect the education sphere to do something the education sphere doesn't do. The kingdom operates differently with different contexts. That's why it's different colors. That's why it's different pictures. Okay, let's, get, let's go forward. Anyways. All right, so that's, that's pouch. All right? So you got the P-O-U-C-H, right? You got the don't make it. You want to make it participative. You want to make it obedience. You want to make it uh, unpaid. You want to make sure that there's in-cell groups. And then you want to make sure that they're in homes. Now, when you look at them, though, you have to, you have to know the principles, not just the situation. So understand this, the principles that are behind each one. All right, next one is this. Every healthy church will have, now we're going to the five things. Every healthy church. You'll notice that some churches have this. So they're, they're somewhat healthy. You'll, like, you'll notice that. You might notice some churches are missing something. And so they needed to mature in something. That's the, that's the idea of it. But the idea is this. When you start a movement with natives, you have to make sure this is what you're aiming at. Everything that you teach them in the first 30 days is what they will do for the next 30 years. It, it lays down the foundation. If you tell somebody you can only evangelize after you got baptized after a two-year teaching, they'll do that to the next person. So the only, here's the trick too. When, okay, I want you to think about when you just got saved. Think about how many people you knew that were lost. Everyone, right? Everyone you knew was like lost because you were lost. All right, now I want you to think about two, three, four, five years down the line. You're going to church, you're doing a bunch of good stuff. How many lost friends do you have compared to when it was five years ago? Less, right? Because you're saved, so you don't hang out with them anymore. You might evangelize them if that's what you're taught, but then you may not be with them anymore. So if you tell somebody, don't evangelize someone until you're mature, they lost all their friends already. The number one evangelist in a native movement are the ones that just got saved. 
You have to teach the ones that just got saved how to share the gospel immediately. And you have to create a structure where immediately they get discipled. Like you have, you have to have that structure inside of there. If you don't have it, you have to build it. You have to ask the Holy Spirit, how are you going to do this? But if you don't know you're looking for it, you won't ask the Lord to do it. That's why you have to know what you're asking for. All right, anyways, it's a discovery process with Jesus. As you go, movements are a discovery process with God. All right, so let's go through these five core principles. You'll notice it. Think of the church you're from. Think of a movement you might be thinking about. And then look at, look at them. They're very simple. Number one, the healthy church will worship. Right? That's something that a lot of churches do. That's good, that's good. All right, number two, a healthy church will fellowship. All right, so that's a good thing. You'll see that a lot. Number three, a healthy church will minister to each other. You're, you're feeling down, I'm gonna encourage you. You need prayer for healing, I'm gonna pray for you. You're in need of something, of a resource in your life, let's pray and give to that need. They minister to each other. In reach, right? Number four, discipleship. A healthy church will have some structure where people will go from milk to solid food. They'll be able to discern good and evil. They'll be able to look at the word and get their own revelation and obey it. That's solid food. That's discipleship. And then leadership development. The next one is the one that most of them miss. So that's fine. That's fine. There's nothing wrong. None of us are perfect. You just know that when you're praying, if that's lacking, that's what you need to pray for. So it doesn't mean you dismiss the church movement or the church. You just pray with them for evangelism and missions. So they can have all of them, but make sure they have to have that one too. So that's why when we're dealing with the movement in, in the city, with the spheres, it's not complete until we have the mobilization. So it's not a full church until we have all of these components. The goal would be that the culture of the sphere or the school does all five. That's what you're aiming for. How that looks, you got to figure that out. I mean, you got to, maybe it's all of them, maybe it's not. Um, but let's just see. The hope would be all of them do that. So anyways, let's keep moving forward. All right, so that's five core purposes. Worship, fellowship, ministry, discipleship, evangelism, and missions. All right, that's five. Now you take your fingers and then you go down and you go to four. Right now, four. These are very, very important to a movement. These have to occur. You will see a very big breakdown with churches with this. This is where most of the breakdown happens. And some of it happens because number five, evangelism isn't there. The, the first one, that one's kind of common. That one's self-governing. That means the church can lead itself. But that also means every place where you multiply can lead itself. It doesn't have a central nervous system. It can sustain itself on its own. They don't have to go back to you to ask what to do. You're not trying to create a headquarters. You're trying to create a movement that could let each piece of the body, each body that's being developed can lead itself. You, when you exit, it's still leading. You don't have to exit so to say you never come back, but it can lead itself. That's self-governing. The next one is it's self-supporting. It doesn't need you to fund it. 
It has to be self-supported on its own. Every movement, every church. So even, let's say you do have a church plant, but it's connected to money. But if you kill that allowance or that money, then the church dies. You can't have that in your movement. It has to be able to create its own funding by whatever means it is. So it doesn't matter what the means are. It just has to be able to create that. All right, this is a very important one. Number three, it has to self-multiply. That means that when you leave it on its own, it will multiply on its own. That's why when all of the apostles died, the church still lived. When Jesus died, the church still grew because it's the Holy Spirit, obviously. But I mean, the Holy Spirit is doing these things. That's what he's aiming at. So if you're looking at a movement, you're asking yourself, will this multiply without the foreign catalyst being present? Without the missionary being there, will it still multiply on its own? That's what you're looking for if it will do that. Again, if you're looking at this correctly, you're looking for a leader that will be able to produce these things. You're not trying to do it on your own. You're trying to find leaders in the native land that will be able to carry the five core purposes, that will be able to carry the four marks of maturity. You're constantly discipling the leader to do these things. So even when we train the leaders in the city, we're asking them in the city, what we're training them is that they will know this is what they're supposed to be doing. That's what you're aiming for. All right, the next one is very, very important. This is the reason why things become like a cult. They have to self-correct themselves and they have to self-feed themselves. That means that if somebody sins, someone knows how to correct it inside the body. Every time something wrong happens, they can't call the missionary. They have to be able to go like, well, what do you do if you had two wives? and you got saved. How do we fix that? The, the movement has to be able to answer that from the Bible and prayer for it to self-correct itself. The movement can't wait for the missionary to come to feed them. They have to be able to feed themselves. That's what the leaders have to be able to do. They have to be able to do it from milk into solid food. So these are good traits even for us, I mean, honestly. You want to be able to live these out before you duplicate them. All right. Now you're going to go to three. Three is the biblical offices that you're looking at. So again, look at the principles. Okay, the next one is that there is an overseer, which we would call the pastor, which in a lot of churches, that's what the pastor does. So there's a pastor or an elder. There's someone appointed that will oversee everything. So a healthy movement will have a pastor, will have an overseer. Who's going to oversee this movement in this region of the city? That's what you're looking at. The, where do you get these guys? You get them from the people that just got saved. You don't get them, you don't get them from a missionary. The missionary doesn't do these things. The missionary looks for them with the people that just got saved. That's how you produce the movement. You don't produce the movement from getting saved people to lead the movement. You get the movement by getting native people that just got saved to lead the movement. That's how you do it. That's how you train yourself. That's why you see movements in the world where people don't even sometimes 
like they don't even speak the language sometimes because they're not the ones with the movement. One time I talked to um, uh, one of these, uh, he's a church planning mentor of mine, and um, I asked him, so, so what exactly do you like do when you're in South Asia? And he said, well, I help oversee a movement of 20 million people. And I was like, okay. So I was like, what is that? I was like, what does that even look like? So anyways, he starts teaching me these things and I'm getting completely blown away. I'm like, I'm just like, wait, what, what, what? He, this is the way he tested me. I asked him, oh, I wanted to be trained by a church planter that had a lot of fruit. Can you train me? And he said, sure, sure, sure. Meet me at five o'clock by the airport. And I was like, I live, in, um, I live an hour away. So that means I have to wake up at 3.30 to meet him at 5 a.m. And he knows that. And then he said this to me, bring someone else that wants to know too. So I was like, all right. So anyways, I prayed about it. And then I was like, wait a minute here. That's really early. <laughs> so I was like, I got done with the meeting. And I was like, that's super early. How am I going to get there? I've got to wake up at like 3.30 in the morning. And then the Holy Spirit told me something. He said, he's testing you. He's going to see how badly you want this. Because if you can't wake up at 3 a.m., you won't see a movement. If you're not hungry enough to learn at 3 a.m., you're not hungry enough to see a movement. And I was like, all right. So then I guess I was like, talk to God. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll ask the next hungry person I know. So we were trying to do a campaign in Kansas City, actually. And then there's this one guy that kept talking to me about, I got some church plants, but they don't multiply. What do I do? And I said, I don't know, but I know someone that does. And he said, okay, great. Where do we meet? And then I said, we got to meet by the airport. And then I said, you want me to pick you up? And he said, no, 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 I'll just drive there. And I was like, okay, cool. So anyways, he goes there because he's dead hungry. And then I go there. And then we're at Starbucks at 4.30, 5 a.m. in the morning, just sitting there. And guess what? He's waiting. And I was like, oh, he's there. So then we woke up. And he's like, oh, great, you brought a friend. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I said, how much time do you have? And he said, I got all the time you need. So then we started talking and talking and talking. He starts breaking down everything. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Then he starts talking to me about all this stuff. And um, we go forward, we go forward. We do that for about like a month or something. And then finally he tells me, uh, yeah, so when are you free again? And I was like, well, we could meet at 5 a.m. again if you want. And he said, well, actually, I'm free at 8 if you want to just meet at 8 or 9 or 10 or something. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I guess 10 would be better. Where do you want to meet? And he said, let's just meet at the plaza. That's like 20 minutes, 15 minutes from me. And then I was like, okay. So then we meet up there. And then he has his disciple now. And then he's all like, he's like, anyways, I just wanted to see if you're serious. So now we can just meet whenever you want. <laughs> so anyways, but that's the native leader you're looking for. You're looking for someone that's hungry. You're not looking for someone that likes your stuff. You're looking for obedience. That's what you're looking at. That's why Jesus said, come, drop what you're doing and follow me. He knew every single person that would follow him immediately would sacrifice a lot of stuff. But he was looking for someone that would leave it all. Here's a really good picture of what Jesus did. Jesus gave these fishermen the greatest harvest of fish they've ever had. That's like saying you're working with a business guy who's struggling. He's not catching any fish. And then you tell him a little strategy. 
And all of a sudden, he catches a million dollars. And then Jesus says, come follow me. And he said, but I just got a million dollars. Like, can we just do this more often? If you keep doing this fish thing, I'll be a millionaire. And then Jesus says, I'll make you a fisher of men. Come follow me. And then they drop their nets and they follow him. They drop the million dollars and follow Jesus. Every man that's called by Jesus or woman will be pitted against an amazing sacrifice. And that's what you look for in a native leader. You don't look for if they're cool. You don't look for if they look good. You don't look for if they like do cool things and look cool in, in public. You look for their hunger. The hunger is the one thing you can never train. You can never train it. I mean, you could talk about it so people know you're supposed to do it, but then you can't tell someone to be hungry. If someone's not hungry, they're not hungry. And so when you're in these movements, these giant movements, you're looking for the hungry native. Who's the one that's going to do it? And so uh, every place that we're at, there's some praying woman. It's crazy. We're in some of the hardest places in the world. Uh, not hardest, hardest, but then like you're in the places where, well, actually, yeah, one of them is really hard. Um, but it's amazing who calls us there. It's usually some praying woman that's like under the age of 25 or something like that. It's not some like crazy dude that has all this experience and has been in all these places. It's this one person, even like a woman, that's saying, God told me to do something. I'm going to do it. And then they do it. And then they're one of the only few people in that whole region that have the faith to see the gospel in their country. Absolutely shocking. I still have Muslims from Aceh. You know Aceh where they whip you? I got Muslim from Aceh asking, saying to us, I miss you. Can you come back? I want to visit you. And I'm like, so I'm like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, we'll do that. But it would have never happened unless there was this individual that was hunger, hunger-filled, prayer-filled, and obedient-filled. And so if you want this for your place, you have to be that for your region. That's what it has to be. And then the Lord will send you, or he'll send somebody, or he'll do something. When I left this public school, um, I, was, I was making my list of all of the greatest needs. They were like, we need a Rubik's Cube. We need like costumes. We need this. We need that. If you get that, that will really help. And there was this one woman that was following me. And she couldn't like, like she was so, she was like, yes, the Bible was really good in our school. You need to train all of our faculty in that. And I was like, okay, great, great. And then I walked into the clinic and I said, okay, what are the things in the clinic you need? We need a spermogrammeter or whatever. We need some of this medication. We need some of this medicine. And I was like, okay, okay. Then I walked into the next room. And then she tells me, yeah, the Bible in the character and values is really good for all of the leaders. They're really, they're really doing it now. And I was like, okay, okay. And then we go into the theater. And then we're well, not, it's not really a theater, but it's like a room. And then it's like a room. And then I'm like, well, what, do you, what do you need here? It's like, we need costumes. We need trainers. And then she stands right in front of me. And then she says, what we really need here for the gospel and the harvest of Jesus Christ is that YWAM hub. We really need that. If you could do anything for the kingdom in this region, it will be that. There is a great harvest here right now, and that needs to be here. And I was like, so that put me in a position where I was like, we'll get it done this year. 
Uh, so we'll, we'll get that moving by summer. So I was like, and then the Lord told me when I was leaving, he was letting me hear her prayers. So I was leaving and I was listening to her prayers. And she was praying, Holy Spirit, I pray that you send your power into this school. Ooh, I could, I could just feel it already. And then she's, she's praying nonstop for this to happen. And then as I'm walking away, I'm telling Jarl in Genesis, I'm hearing her prayers right now. She's praying that this happens. And so I'm listening to it. And then I start running through all the budgets and I'm running through all the stuff. And I'm like, we could actually build this by summer. Like we could start the whole process in summertime. They might actually get this by the end of the year. And then the Lord tells me and Jarl, he tells both of us and also Genesis, uh, the Lord tells me, um, be fast. Make it fast. And I was like, that really, that really got me. Because he, he's telling me, right now, you're ahead of the enemy. But if you slow down, he'll be ahead of you like America. And so I was like, oh, I was really feeling that. Because I pray about America a lot. And there's obviously a lot of strong leaders there. And so now the leaders are trying to get ahead of what the enemy has done to America. And honestly, I believe they'll do it if they, can, if they stay focused on Jesus. But the Lord was telling me, right now, you're ahead of the enemy. If you don't keep a pace of night and day worship to Jesus and obedience, you'll, he'll pass you. And then, so I'm in the car, and then um, Jarl's telling me, oh, I got a word from God. Jarl always has some kind of word from God. If he tells you something, you might want to listen to it. He doesn't talk that much, but when he talks, it's usually important. So he says like, oh, I have a word of God. And so I'm like, all right, what is it? And then he says, the Lord's telling us to be diligent. And he said, I feel like the Lord's saying, he reminded me of Mark when he was teaching me in Chiang Mai, Thailand with the City Impact Intensive. And then he said, Mark said, you have to push the kingdom of God into the city because the devil works 24 seven. So if you don't work 24 seven, the devil will beat you. You have to push it 24 seven into the city. And I was like, and then Genesis, you know, Genesis is a little different. He talks differently. He'll say like, he'll process it and then he'll, he'll think about it and he'll go like, yeah, like that's what needs to happen. But you know that he thought about it. And then so I look at Genesis and I'm like, what did the Lord tell you? And he said, uh, yeah, we need to do this fast. Like he was like, we need to do this now. And so I looked at everything that we need to get done in 2019 and we have to prioritize this kingdom being built in this school. I was looking at uh, the earlier this year and I was asking God, man, there's so much stuff happening. Like what am I supposed to do with all this stuff? And then he really zeroed me in on a word. It's a business term. It's called critical path. It means that out of everything that ever happens, you must have this critical path. And then he, that critical path led straight to the 1040 window. He said, you can do whatever you want, but if you don't create this critical path to the 1040 window, your work will die. But if you create this path to the 1040 window, it will live. And he said, I will protect what is built. And so I was like, okay, so I guess we do that then, right? So the Lord is talking. All right, so anyways, that's the overseer. The overseer is making sure all of that is getting done. The next one is um, deacons. All right, so when you look at those five core purposes, here's the big thing. You don't do all of it. That's the one thing that sometimes as missionaries, 
we get this concept. Uh, usually it's Western. It's a Western w- way of thinking. A Western way of thinking is the American dream. So I'm going to do this whole thing in the country. So when they come to the country, they're thinking they're going to change the whole thing. So they want to do all of it. I haven't, in the last year, I think I preached to like a thousand people. Like I didn't preach to anybody. Like the one thing I really like, well, I guess that is a good amount, but that's like, that's, I haven't preached to anybody. The one thing I really like doing is preaching and rapping. Now Paul has sent me a message. Hey, can you, can you rap City of Hope? And I'm like, yeah, I think I could squeeze it in my schedule. And then I don't even preach the gospel anymore. Like, you guys preach more than me now. Like, I don't even do it anymore. But that's because my job isn't to do it. My job as the servant is to see the body of God step into their position to do it. So when you're in the movement, you have to find the people that will do the five functions of the church. You have to find the people that will do the worship, that will do the fellowship, that will do the ministry, that will do the discipleship and do the evangelism. Your goal is to bring that into fruition with the people. You have to make sure that those people are in place. You're not the one trying to be the superhero. You're the one talking to Jesus to rise up those native leaders. And you're the one that's being patient while you're mentoring them. And that's what it means to steward the movement. So that's number two, the deacons. You have a deacon for worship, fellowship, ministry, discipleship, evangelism. It's always raising up the native leader. Just as we learned in the video with Paul Eshelman, right? Greatest movements will be done by the people group closest to that people group. I'm I'm like American, I'm Filipino, but then the person that's doing the greatest work of the movement is always a native leader. I never expect myself to be the helm of a movement. You're looking for someone that will be that helm because it can't survive with you. Apostle Paul, some of the longest times he stayed in a movement was 18 months. That was the longest he stayed. Some of the shortest were three months. That means he raised up leaders within a period of less than a year. That's what he's looking at. That's what he's building. That's his pattern. It says, remember this pattern of work that I taught you, Timothy. And it's what he's talking about here. Actually, that was in Hebrews. Actually, that might be in Timothy. I think that was in Hebrews. All right, the next one is three. The office of the treasurer. There's going to be some kind of money coming into the body. You have to make sure that somebody is set in integrity to take care of that. It can't be your overseer. It can't be your leader. It can't be one of those. You have to find a treasurer that's not Judas, because Judas was the treasurer. But you have to find someone that's not going to steal your money. In fact, Judas, he got mad at the works of God when they sacrificed the alabaster jar, because he said, if we sold that, we would have got money to feed the poor. But he knew that he would have stole it. So that's what he's thinking, Judas, because he's like Judas, right? But anyways, every movement, somebody else handles the money. You're not the person handling the money. So you have to give that to somebody of integrity. That creates uh, you being above reproach, but that also creates integrity within the movement. Someone has with integrity be able to handle the money. All right, those are the three marks of the movement. All right, next one, we're going down into two, right? All right, we're gonna go, we just got two more fingers, right? Two two more tracks of it, then you guys are gonna discuss. All right, so the two tracks of authority, 
These are the ones that dictate what is inside of this movement. It's very important. Very, very important. If you have a movement, but it's a justice or civil rights movement, the authority is the doctrine of the civil right. If you have a, a justice movement or a secular compassion movement, what dictates the authority of the movement is the goal of the nonprofit or the movement, right? With a movement of God, the two things that have to dictate it is the Bible and the Holy Spirit. The Bible of what the Bible says and what the Holy Spirit tells you as you ask him is what creates the authority. It's not, okay, you might even know some Christian movements that aren't dictated by the Bible and by the Holy Spirit. They're dictated by the vision of the leader. When the vision of the leader becomes the overall vision of the movement, not what the Bible says or the Holy Spirit is telling them, it becomes a cult. So you have to make sure when people start becoming extra biblical and opinionated in their authority in the movement, and that starts happening, when they start creating their own doctrine and they call it the authority of the movement, you're in a cult. So you have to ask yourself, is this thing a cult or not? I mean, don't walk around judging things, but just know that when you're starting a movement or you're partnering with another movement, you're asking yourself, okay, is the Bible and the prayer of the Holy Spirit the main thing that dictates where it goes? Or is there some guy that can tell everybody what to do without the Bible and the Holy Spirit being the main authority? You have to watch that. It's actually, it's actually easy to tell. You can kind of see, well, do people pray here and listen to the Holy Spirit? If they don't listen to the Holy Spirit, they probably don't follow the Holy Spirit. The next thing you want to ask yourself is, do they follow what the Word of God says? Is that what's coming out of their mouth or is it not what's coming out of their mouth? If they never talk about the Bible, they're probably not following the Bible. So that's really easy to see if that thing's a cult-like movement. Anyways, don't go around pointing fingers all day. Just don't start one. Don't start a movement that doesn't have that as the major, major criteria. All right. The next one is that at the top of everything, there is one holy essence. There's one thing that is driving everything, and it's Jesus. It's God. Every movement, God has to be driving the whole thing. So, I mean, that's kind of self-explanatory. But... Um, yeah, that's kind of explanatory. It can't be a person. It can't be a face. It can't be you, for example. It can't be a pastor. It can't be me. It can't be anybody. At the end of the day, the ultimate authority of the movement has to be God. But if people don't pray, they won't do that, for one thing. But if they, if they are praying and they're talking to God, God should have the ability to do whatever he wants in the movement. But if people aren't praying and talking to him, that's not going to happen. So just, just watch that. You have to ask yourself, are they ultimately going towards God's plan? Are they ultimately being taught how to follow the word of God and what the Holy Spirit is saying? Is Jesus going to ultimately be the authority of this movement? And that's how you create a movement. All right. Um, let's, I'm going to talk a little bit about the healthy DNA, the concluding points that you guys are going to discuss. Okay, so for the healthy DNA, one thing that people are misguided by is that they think 
if it's moving too fast and it's multiplying too much, that it's going to be unhealthy. But if you create the movement in such a way with these principles from the Bible, as it multiplies, it should be self-healthy. It should be self-correcting. It should make its own antibodies to fight against the disease of sin. If you create it correctly, if you do what the Holy Spirit is saying from the word of God, then it will be able to mature itself. But if you don't have these pieces inside of the movement, then it will become unhealthy. And so that's why every time I think about movements, these are the non-negotiables. Every time I'm thinking about, okay, if there's going to be a movement, they have to have these principles. These things that the Lord said, they have to work themselves out somehow. You may not get them all at once. Again, the Holy Spirit is the one that's growing it. So you don't have to be perfect, but you have to know what you're praying for. You have to know what you're going for. You have to know what the Holy Spirit wants. And so all of these pictures here are from the Bible. All right, let's go ahead and um, go into some concluding points, and then you guys can talk. All right, most movements are catalyzed by outside believers, but ultimately multiplied by first-generation native believers. So it's not odd for someone from another country or a, a foreign person to be the thing that starts the movement. That's not odd at all. That's how the book of Acts and the Bible started. But where we usually go wrong, the misconception is, is that the foreigners will be the one that continues it. Or the church will often be the one that multiplies it. They're looking for their leaders inside of the ones that are saved. The leaders don't come from there. Well, the, the movement leaders don't come from there. They come from the ones that just got saved natively. That means you're looking at some person that was smoking crack or sleeping around and doing all these sinful things. They get saved. They get humble. They start learning from what you do, and they might be the movement of the leader, the, move, the leader of the movement. You're looking for your leaders from the ones that got evangelized. That's a very, very, very key concept. Here's another, here's another thing. It's often more difficult to train someone that's been taught what to do for 20, 30 years than to train someone that doesn't know what to do on what to do for the next 20, 30 years. Because if somebody has habits that don't multiply, they'll keep multiplying leaders that don't multiply. But if you train them from ground zero to multiply, then they'll, be mul they'll multiply. Um, I once asked, um, I was, there was another guy that was, um, he was kind of like a little mentor of mine too, in martial arts. So he was, um, how many of you know terrorist? Anyone know terrorists? All right, you know, personally, no, I'm joking. Anyone know of terrorists, right? Okay, they got something in America that are called Delta Force. All right, Delta Force, some of their first trainings was how do you kill a terrorist while you're inside of an airplane and they have an AK-47 or a gun that they brought on the airplane somehow. That's their training. It's not like you're trying to train them. Well, they know how, they know how to do all that. 
but you're, you're not training them on long range only and all this other stuff. They're specifically trained on how can they kill someone like a terrorist very fast. And so even the movements that they learn is built on how are they going to dodge the bullets, disarm the terrorists, and kill them immediately. That's the Delta Force. So uh, one of the things that they're taught in, I forgot it's, um, I, th I think I've, I, I really forgot the word. I think it's Ronin Bushido. It's a Bushido mar martial arts, I think. Bushido Ronin martial arts or something. I actually forgot the word of it. So anyways, every trick in this martial arts, every move was made to kill. And so the guy that made it was called Jim Harrison. And so Jim Harrison, they talked to him when he was like 70, 80 years old. My friend was trying to evangelize him for the longest time, uh, but he's kind of hard-headed. So anyways, um, I don't know, he might've got saved, I forgot what it was. But um, he said, he asked him, out of all of your years of experience, what would be the one thing that you would have taught differently? And he said, the problem is this, I would have taught them how to be more aggressive because some of them, when you gouge out their eyes, they stick it back in their head and then they'll kill you. What I should have taught them to do was gouge out their eyes, bite it, and then kill them. And so that's what he was thinking about training better because of his specific calling with terrorists, so to say. All right, so anyways, I talked to this, I talked to them, and then so uh, one of my mentors, I asked him how many black belts did Jim Harrison ever give out? I, I really forgot the real number, but I know it's less than 300. And I was like, wow, 300, that's so low. And he said, yeah, but Jim Harrison trained them. And so he said, until now, that martial arts is being trained to the top special forces of all of America. And so even America still now does that stuff. He's the guy that did um, Roadhouse. I don't know if you watched that movie. I didn't even watch it. It's like super old. You watched it? <laughs> All right, never mind. It's, it's super old. Is this Roadhouse with um, Patrick Swayze? <laughs> anyways, 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 I'll dig out of my ditch. I'll get out of my ditch. All right, so anyways, that's who he is. Don't watch it because I don't think it's... I don't think it's saved, yeah. Because Jim Harrison isn't the classic pastor. So anyways, I talked to him, and then I say, um, how many champions do you have? And then he said, every single one of these black belts are almost undefeated. Like, they, they're very hard to defeat. And I said, well, how do you do that? Like, how did you get people that are trained so well? And then he said, champions give birth to champions. They don't know how to lose. They're not trained in one bad habit. Every habit they have is something that's completely champion-like. It makes them somewhat invincible when they fight. That's how they train. And so he, that's what he was telling me. If you train someone with bad habits, like you have bad habits, all of them will get it. But if you train someone and you're a champion, then they'll get all of your habits. But it's harder to untrain someone with bad habits. And so that's the same thing with movements. It's easier to grab somebody and give them champion-like teachings than it is to reteach someone that, doesn't have, that has so much of their own thinking. So that's why you look for the natives, because the natives will have it. Again, there's hunger, humility, and teachability can overkill everything. So it doesn't mean someone that has bad habits can unlearn them. It just means that they have to have teachability, humility, hunger and obedience to be able to do it. 
So don't, don't rule them out. Just know that that's what you're looking for. All right, the next one is this. When we think about people groups and reachedness, when a nation is reached, it only has 2%. So, for example, there's specific Monobo tribe dialects that are reached now. Then they have like 2.6 or something. That percentage in movements in global missions, 2% isn't if it will become a viral movement. 2% is simply that they have the resource to not die. They have the resource to self-multiply and not be killed off in that region. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done with the 2%. So if you're working with a people group that has 2% or more, you have to understand when it says that they're reached, it just means that they won't die off. But it doesn't mean that they're trained yet. So that's one thing that you have to think about. I don't know if that's... That is applicable because a lot of you might be thinking about reached areas. All right, here it is. The ultimate local inward goal of the region is transformation. You want to see the demonstration of the Holy Spirit inside of the region, the full transformation of the Holy Spirit. That's what you're praying for. The ultimate outward goal of the region is mobilization to the remaining unreached people groups. You have to see transformation and the region you're working in, and you have to see mobilization to the places that are yet unreached. And the ones that are best to do it are the ones that are living through it because you raised them in that culture. Um, how many of you know who, um, who's the guy that did Tesla? Um, Elon Musk. All right, so one of the things that Elon Musk is doing is he's, he's um, predicted without God because he doesn't know about Jesus, but... Um, he's predicted without God that within a couple of decades, I forgot exactly what it is, but within decades or 100 or 300 years, or actually it might be more than that, we will destroy this earth. So with his life, he's trying to create life where we can live on another planet. So what he's doing is he's trying to educate our population that we have to believe we can live on another planet. That's what he's thinking. So guess what he's doing? He's got space dirt, space dust and stuff from another planet, and he gives it to kids in elementary. And he tells them that one day, if you learn and grow and become smart enough, you'll learn how to produce fruit from this soil on Mars. So he's telling kids at a very young age the future of what he's seeing. That's essentially what you're, what you're seeing there. You have to develop the next generation in such a way they see the future that God is painting. That's what you have to do. You have to show them the blueprint that God is playing for their life when you talk to these new generation people. You have to give them that vision. You have to show them what the Holy Spirit is saying. And then they'll grow into it. You teach a child when they're young and they'll keep it as they grow older. All right, the last one before we get into um, discussion. Ooh, yeah, your discussion. Will be every believer is called to be a missionary in their region. There's, there's no such, the word missionary itself, it's a, little, it's a little bit of a play on words, all right? So if you think about it, we have something called the Great Commission. That's where they got the word mission. 
And then so what it says, the way that the history of that word plays out is that so we're missionaries, so we go and make disciples of all nations. But the way that that story plays out is that everyone that has the Holy Spirit will be a witness wherever they are. So you never not be a witness to where you are. That's, that's, that's there. Okay, this is the next part of it. This is, where, this is where we need a little bit of understanding. The word apostolos is the word sent one. Apostolos means apostle. That's the Greek word. Everybody is called to be a witness in their region. But very few people are called to be an apostolos from their region. That means that they're a sent one from their region. It's a very low percentage. The apostolos, if you look at even the new church, it was like less than 1%. I talked to um, my mentor, the church planning guy, and then I said, um, he said, remember, when you're working with millions, you're looking for the one. And I was like, what do you mean the one? And he said, you're looking for the Paul. Because you could spray a lot of seeds, and then the way that God's balance works is that some of them might die. Some of them might grow, but some of them might be hundredfold. And that hundredfold seed is your apostolos. And when you get them, they're going to super spread the gospel everywhere. And I said, wow, that's crazy. So how often do they come about? And he said, well, every single one of these stages, you lose a percentage of your movement. And so at the end of it, your apostolos from the native land will be 0.05. That's how many sent ones there are in the body of God. I mean, I don't know if that's like how many people are called and don't go, but I do know that the apostolos is incredibly little. So if you know you're called to be sent, you need to know you're called to be sent because there's only 0.05 of you. It's very little. There's, there's the apostolic where I can do new things. And then there's the apostle that, in, that creates it. He's, they're doing it. They're not apostolic by nature. They are the sent one. When it said in Ephesians 4, God gave gifts to men. And then he said, God gave gifts to men, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, and the teacher. Actually, I think the teacher is then the shepherd, or it depends what you're looking at. And then he says this, these are the gifts to men. That means that if you are one of these people, you are the gift to mankind. So you have to sacrifice your life for what Jesus is saying. The reason why we're struggling with the Great Commission is because we're looking for these apostolic ones in the next generation. I believe that there's apostolic a lot in this next generation. I don't know how many people I heard that said they got called to finish the Great Commission. And I don't know how many people I heard next year that don't do it. Now, I don't know what the whole storyline is, but I do know this. If God's calling you, and you're already someone that was very little called into it, I wouldn't take that for granted. Because if you're the one alien in your church that for some reason feels a call, 
you might be that one alien that's supposed to go. You just might, you just might want to think about that. Everyone is called to be a witness, but few are called to be sent. The sent is very different. It's a, a completely different servitude. And there's very little of them. And you're, you're, under, you're misunderstood. You're, no one gets you. You're the first of your kind. You'll look at your whole generation and you're one of the first that do it. Because you're the sent one. But the generation is pivoted on your obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus, that's why Jesus says, how beautiful are the feet that spread the good news. Because the feet that move forward are the feet that will be the movement. But if nobody ever moves, the movement will never, will never happen. That's why in my life, I make sure I am the feet that are moving. I can't, in my life, I, I threaten myself. I dare to be the Israelite in the wilderness that will die in my generation and not see the promised land. Everyone in this generation thinks that if you just pray enough, you'll get your promise. Everyone in this generation thinks that if you're good enough and you read the Bible enough, you'll see the fullness of your destiny. That's incredibly not true. God's not waiting for you. He can wait for you to die, like in the wilderness. None of us have favoritism with Jesus. None of us are more important than somebody else. He's looking for a quality of soil. He's looking for the hungry, the thirsty, the poor in spirit, and the obedient. And they can come from anywhere. They can come from a tribe. They can come from a city. They can come from a gang. They can come from anywhere. Because he's not looking for a resume. He's looking for a soil inside of your heart. And anyone that has that soil, he will send. And that's what's going to finish the Great Commission. So Holy Spirit, we just thank you so much, God, that you have no favoritism, that you have no prerequisite other than a complete wholeheartedness love to you, Jesus. God, we thank you that the number one determining factor of our success is our first love, Jesus. That nothing else matters besides you loving us and us loving you completely wholeheartedly. So why don't we just go ahead and, um, I don't know if we'll have time to break into groups, but I, I do feel like there's, a, there's an essence that we, need to, um, that we need to pray. So why don't you just go ahead and pray to Jesus right now. Just talk to him about everything that we just discussed. And if you're, if you're, if you're sensing something that he's saying, then just, you know, he can change things as you, as you grow. He can, everything that we see, we see in part. So it doesn't mean that what you're seeing is the fullness, but what it does mean that you're seeing may be a part of it. And as you pray with the body, as you pray with your brothers and sisters, as you pray with your spiritual mentors and your fellowship, then he'll confirm it with the body. So you don't have to feel like you're gonna get the full picture, but you do have to know that he's asking for the soil of your heart. So Lord, I ask that you would just, you would speak to us right now that you would give us your heart, that you would talk to us. And Lord, I live with an expectation that every time I talk to you, you will radically change my life. And God, I've done that for 10 years. 
And Lord, I know that right now, as we come to you and we talk to you, one word that you say will radically transform our lives right now, Jesus. It doesn't matter if we heard you five minutes ago. It doesn't matter if we heard you 10, 10 days ago or 15 years ago. Every single word that you give us is a scythe that can bring a harvest to our life right now. And so, Lord, we come with the expectancy that you will encounter us and radically transform us right now, Jesus. So, God, we give this time to you and we say, have your way with us, Jesus. So just engage with the Lord. Let him talk to you in dreams and visions and signs and wonders and speaking to you in a small voice or scripture, whatever it is that he's telling you to communicate and commune with him. Just go ahead and do that.